The following Dharma talk was given by Ron Hogan Green. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. He delivered his talk over Zoom from his home to both residents and home practitioners. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody. And uh, I'd just like to get some sense that you can hear me. Can you give me a thumbs up? Great. Thank you. First, I want to say this is pretty amazing that uh, from so many directions, this talk is going out, being received. And um, thank you for your practice and for all those who are contributing to this directly or indirectly. I, I deeply appreciate it. Case 123 from the True Dharma I, Mayu's Nature of Wind, in the main case. Master Bauchi of Mount Mayu was fanning himself. A monastic approached and said, Master, the nature of wind is permanently abiding and there is no place it does not reach. Why then must you still fan yourself? Although you understand that the nature of wind is permanently abiding, the master replied, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. What is the meaning of its reaching everywhere? Asked the monastic. The master just fanned themselves. The monastic bowed with deep respect. That Rosh's commentary. If you have realized the truth of this koan, you will know that to encounter one activity is to practice one activity. To attain one dharma is to penetrate one dharma. If, however, this is not yet clear, then take the backward step and see for yourself how Mayu's fanning himself is not only the wind reaching everywhere, but the fan, Mayu, the monastic, and you yourself reaching everywhere. Daitarashi's poem. Words cannot convey the action. Letters cannot embody the truth. How can they compare with Omayu just fanning themselves? It's been a remarkable privilege to participate in the New Zealand session, which is running ahead, of course, of the session that's happening at Sin Mountain Monastery for the people there and for uh, the people who, who are participating in one continuous thread. And it's, it's been very instructive for me because right before my eyes, I see, as is usual, people entering early in Sashin and where they're coming from and a sense of how they are uh, and how the Zazen is. And then as the days go by, to see the changes that occur, that the sensitivities that occur, the depth that occurs as the session goes on and sitting goes on, and the seriousness of the great matter becomes more visible. And our tendency to kind of skate on the surface of our life 
outside of Sashin, which we need to do to be a good skater, um, becomes clearer to us. And we can begin to see the, the, the depths of our mind, which is what we're doing. And how that gets reflected in how people talk, how people come into face-to-face, and what they say or don't say. And from the cultivation of the stillness and the depth, what comes forth. And it makes, it makes a deep impression, even though I see this every session, to see it so dramatically between once a shin, a couple of days ahead of the other, and it makes it pretty obvious. I'm deeply impressed, in particular, with people who have sat a lot of sashins and get right to it, or able to get right to it. And what they get into is the Buddha's fundamental teaching, the nature of their suffering and the freedom from that suffering. And freedom from that suffering doesn't mean there isn't pain or there sometimes isn't suffering. Of course there is, but to be free of it when there is, is no small thing in life. I've been sitting for the past while and thinking about these opening words and how difficult life is, in particular right now, locally, wherever local is for you, and certainly on a planet-wide basis, how much violence there is, overt violence, how much hostility, how much opposition there is reflexively, um, how much the world is suffering environmentally, racially, how much division there is, and on and on and on. And in one sense, there's nothing new about suffering, of course, as long as we've had the ability to think, we've had the ability to have a discriminating mind, and we've had a sense of self, and we've attached to that. At the same time, we're in a time where the karma of the civilization that we've cultivated mostly around this world is beginning to come to a a point where we're irreparably damaging the world we live in, at least as we know it. I mean, Earth is going to continue just fine one way or the other, as it has for billions of years in the past. But this has brought on so much suffering. And you know, it's, it's hard to face because it's so painful. And all the suffering starts from an individual perspective. That's what's so interesting to me. You know, in one sense, there are no corporations, there are no countries, there are no organizations. It's just people, a person, me, you, and the next person. And how we live our life and use our mind is at the very bottom of all of this. And to begin to see this, to begin to see our own mind as we sit for these hours, 
and to appreciate that every time the mind moves, it creates a, a space, a separation, a lack of intimacy in one sense, or an opportunity to help in another sense. So it's not that just that delusion is all pervasive, so to speak, in a thinking mind. It's what you and I do with that delusion of self, because that delusion ain't going away. It ain't going away in me and you and in anybody else. But when we take it for all that there is, and when we buy it for this is the whole thing, and we can't see past that, even the possibility of seeing past that, then suffering is guaranteed. And given the power that we have individually and collectively, there's enormous harm. And we hear all the time that each of us is responsible for the whole thing. But how can I and you as an individual do something for the whole thing? I don't know the answer to that in a large sense, but I know it in a personal sense. I start here. And I hope you would start here for you. And if it's, it's something that practicing for a while has shown me is that the ripples, the karma of practice pervades. I have no idea where it ends. I don't think it ends. I know I could not be here practicing if so many other human beings hadn't staked their lives on their practicing. Some of them, a few of which I know and have known, but most are gone. Most I will never know. But here we all are with this opportunity to see into suffering, to see into the joy of this life, to see into the wholeness of this life, and knowing or not knowing, affecting so many others. Ultimately, whatever we practice and see into must be embodied. When all is said and done, this is a practice of embodiment. It's very, very personal. Your body, you. For the wisdom that arises out of our practice, it has to function as compassion. And it has to manifest from how we live our life, how we think our thoughts. We embody what we practice, what we discern and see for ourselves. whether this is within formal spiritual practice or in whatever manner we live. In all cases, we embody our experience and our understanding of that experience. Doesn't necessarily mean we're aware of it or aware of all of it or even aware of part of it. We radiate our karma. We share it with the universe. And our karma arises from our embodiment. On one hand, it's a huge responsibility. On the other hand, it's just being alive and being and having the opportunity as a human being to help, to help ourselves, to quote, save all, all sentient beings. Seeing into our original nature, 
and manifesting compassion is expressed within the moments of our life as continuous practice. Otherwise, what's the sense of what we do? And that is not an accomplishment, that's a practice. We practice that. And it's not a success or failure. It's a practice. For example, if when we sit zazen, we have a thought that takes us away from our breath or the focus of our practice. If we then start to engage on, oh, I'm terrible, this is bad, I can't do this, we know where that ends. It's not helpful. And now we're practicing something very different. You're practicing a continuation of our self-centered perspective. And we know this, we've heard this innumerable times. So we practice that. We let go of that. And that's the wonderful thing about practice. It doesn't matter. Well, it does matter what we do and what we think. But whatever that is, we can practice that. And the line between practice and realization is not existent. It's a cultivation. We are cultivating realization. That's what we're doing. And what is realization? It's the wholeness of your body and mind, which is in no way limited to your physical body, or another way to put it. It's limited to your physical body. Your physical body is limitless. Wisdom and compassion expressed are not two. Knowing this, we can endeavor to cultivate and practice each aspect of our life with a sense of wholeness. I think, at least for me, this is why my vows are so important, because it's so easy for, to forget, to be distracted by my illness of myself. And I suspect that's true of each of us. It's easy to, to look away, but we can come back. We can return over and over and over and over no matter what the transgression is. That's the wonderful part of practice. There's a karma, but we can practice our karma too. Another way of saying this, how we live is our practice. And this is very intimate indeed. Even if we have no awareness of this, which a lot of times we may not. We are all aware of the fundamental teaching of the Buddha. Originally, we're whole and complete. A Buddha nature shines through us. Whether we practice or realize it or not, but that shining can be very dull indeed, or can be wonderfully manifested, wonderfully not necessarily in a loud or obvious way. Sometimes we have a very clear idea of why we practice or reason, a very clear question. And sometimes that may not be clear to us. But the energy of our life and our karma has brought us here. Often with time, our questions may become clearer or change to reflect how we understand the Dharma and how we understand ourselves. Sometimes 
we may not be able to articulate a question at all. But the basic inquiry becomes foundational, so foundational that it's actually less expressive through words and thoughts. For Dogen, given his life experience, he well understood and knew that all beings are inherently endowed with Buddha nature. It was a given. Given this understanding, the life poem for him was, why then is practice crucial? After all, we are all imbued as Buddha nature from the beginning. Isn't it therefore embodied from the beginning? The Gendra Koan, the first fascicle and Dogen's master work, the Shobogenzo, addresses this directly, as does the rest of the Shobogenzo. And for me, the Shobogenzo is lyrical poetry, not in the classical form of Western poetry, but is remarkably lyrical. So this case from the Genja Kohn is Dogen's response to his, the exploration of his life koan. And he, offered a, he offers it to us. Mr. Bauchi of Mount Mayu was fanning himself. A monastic approached and said, Master, the nature of wind is permanently abiding and there is no place it does not reach. Why then must you still fan yourself? Now, this is a con, but forget it. Forget it as a con. Just take it in as a person practicing. Put yourself in the monastic's place. It's being asked is not a casual question. I can envision coming to Doksan, approaching my teacher, who in the summer heat is fanning themselves. Master, I beg you to help me. I understand that my self-nature is ever abiding and there is no place a person lacking in this. Knowing this, knowing this, I know it. I believe it. It's clear to me. What do I need to sit zazen and do all these practices when I already know I'm whole and complete? knowing. In his footnote to the monastic's question, Daito Roshi asks, where did, he, where did he hear about this? That all beings are whole and complete. And the note has a subtle pointing. He heard about it. He bought it. He took it in. It's encased in his surroundings, Buddhist culture to some degree, just like we're in a Buddhist culture to some degree. It's encased in our surroundings as well. Perhaps you too have heard this, but where and how does it affect you? Is this declaration truly your own? In this case, the monastics, seeing the master fan themselves, brought up the question directly forward, implied in their question, is that in knowledge, in knowing, something is missing. 
or the question wouldn't have been asked. Implied in you being here, me being here too, is that something is missing, there's more. What could that be? Are you missing something? Am I missing something? Perhaps the monastic is thinking, as I have thought, I need to know, but not in the sense of knowing about. I need to be able to trust my eyes, my ears, my life, my experience. I can't yet feel this. No, to some degree I can. And as we get older, we hopefully get a little wiser, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I can't yet know that I know, and I need to. And I'm using no and not no in particular ways. I hope you're picking up on that. Monastic is saying, I don't know how to proceed, and there's no direction before me. I beg you, Master, please help me. So what's being acknowledged is that it's not enough to reason and think and even be confident in your knowledge. One must find out for oneself. It's not that it has to be imprinted on you so that it's very clear to you. It's that it has to be you yourself. That's the distinction. Your Buddha nature is you, you personally, intimately yourself. There's no space, no gap between you and that nature. And seeing that for yourself is realization, clarity, which is not a thing and ultimately not at all different than practice. Can you put yourself here where the monastic is coming from? This is great doubt. The question in great doubt before you is immovable, as solid as a mountain. And within it is a demand that cannot be denied. Now, how, how it manifests in each person is very, very different. For some, it's enormous energy and determination. And, and for others, it's gentle as a breeze. Sometimes it's one way, sometimes it's another way, and on and on and on, because we are all those things. Yet there is also a deep faith within this questioning that is present, that must be present. And over the years, I've, I've looked for how Dogen viewed faith. And he says at one point, it is imperative for those who practice the way to believe in it. Those who have faith in the way should know for certain that they are unfailing in the way from the very beginning and are thus free from confusions, delusions, and disarray, as well as from additions, subtractions, and errors. Believing in this manner and penetrating the way thusly Practice it accordingly. Such is fundamental to learning the way. Believing in this manner, 
and penetrating the way thusly. Practice it accordingly. And each of us has our own journey and our own relationship with how we understand faith and great doubt and how that blossoms for, for us or not. When I came to practice, I had no interest in faith. I had no interest in words in a book, and I had no interest in what other people were telling me about just believe in X and your life will be fine. I needed to know that I knew that I knew. I needed to trust what I saw, what I smelled, my taste, and especially what I felt. I needed to trust that my actions had an effect. And when I did actions that were harmful, that had an effect. When I did actions that were not, that had an effect. It's interesting because it was a battle for me at first, because when I was a child, I was, as I've said many times, I was, was not a good child. It created a lot of harm. I was a JD in Brooklyn, which stands for juvenile delinquent. And I knew my parents only found out a, a small percentage of the things I did because if they had known what I had done, it would have been very different. As it was, it wasn't good. So I really questioned, is it cause and effect? And I was skeptical. But as I got older, it became clear to me that it, there was cause and effect. It just wasn't first order. It just wasn't apparent to me that I could grab and therefore manipulate and get what I want. I tried that. And it ultimately did not work. When one is faithful, one becomes faith, or faith becomes one. This is a practice of faith. And it's a practice of study, of seeing what happens with one's relationship with faith and with doubt. Great doubt which does not mean cynicism. I think you understand that. It means questioning, deeply, profoundly questioning. There is no problem when we are faithful. Or as Dogen says, no confusions amidst the highs and lows. There are highs and lows, terrible lows sometimes. But there's no confusion about that. The Buddha never said, there isn't going to be old age, sickness, and death. He said, there is. The question is, how will you live and how will you die? How, you, how will you get sick and how will you help? And faith and clarity are a single body. They manifest each other. Although you understand that the nature of wind is permanently abiding, I've changed the language slightly to make this clearer. The master replied, you do not understand the meaning of it reaching everywhere. In presenting this at the, towards the end of the Gendra Koan, Master Dogen prefaces this statement, what Dada she presented as a koan, with the statement, do not suppose that what you realize becomes your knowledge and is grasped by your consciousness. Although actualized immediately, 
the inconceivable may not be apparent. Its appearance is beyond your knowledge. This is a striking and intriguing statement for me. It's just that all dharmas, all things are unobtainable and are without an intrinsic self-nature. All things. They don't have a, a thing to the thing, is what that statement is saying. All phenomenon is unobtainable. And without thingness to them. But we can be at ease in our Dharma practice of no, no abiding. And from a practicing perspective, that's a good question to ask of ourselves. Can we at this moment be at ease in this Dharma place, non-abiding? Because all dharmas are non-abiding. And so right now, we are all non-abiding in this moment. Can we be at ease? After all, where would you abide that does not reach everywhere? Yet if you know that this is it, isn't that abiding in something? Isn't that knowledge that this is it? Abiding in that knowledge? And yet all dharmas are unattainable. They're non-abiding. When the master says, although you understand that the nature of wind is permanently abiding, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. The master is pointing that all the nature of wind, you Buddha nature, is abundant and all-pervading. It does not manifest until it is called forth. And it is called forth directly by your own experience. That's what makes it manifest as wisdom and compassion. When we rouse the mind that seeks the way and practice this, what is fundamentally ours becomes truly ours. It is exactly this, the nature, our nature, the wind is permanently abiding, and so wind appears when we use the fan. How can it not? Because it is permanently abiding, our true nature. And so we sit, it appears. It really is that simple. Why? That's a good question to ask. What is the meaning of its reaching everywhere as the monastic? The master just fan themselves. And the monastic bowed with deep respect. So there's a question for you here. Is the monastic's bow the same as the master's fanning? 
Is it gratitude or respect for the master's response? What is the monastic spell? The relationship of that vow to you. In the commentary, Dido Roshi says, if you have realized the truth of this koan, you will know that to encounter one activity is to practice one activity. To attain one dharma is to penetrate one dharma. So how do we realize? I mean, let's get right to it. How do we realize the meaning of it's reaching everywhere? One single activity, nothing is excluded. We cannot know this from the perspective of knowledge, nor can we know it from the perspective of not knowing. Then how can we come forth? In a footnote to the line, the master just fanned himself. Daito says, throughout the heavens and encompassing the earth, there's no place it does not reach. How is this so? I'm going to paraphrase Dogen here and probably ruin the whole talk. Please forgive me. Dogen says, the total experience of a single thing does not deprive a thing of its own unique particularity. It places a thing neither against others nor against none. To place a thing against none is another form of dualistic obstruction. When total experience is realized unobstructively, the total experience of a single thing is the same as as the total experience of all things. A single total experience is a single thing in its totality. The total experience of a single thing is one with that of all things. Isn't that what we're doing here? Have you experienced the intense concentration of a single breath? Have you experienced the intense faith in inquiring of Mu? Have you experienced the wholeness, just awareness? A single total experience is a single thing in its totality. The total experience of a single thing is one with that of all things. This is available to us. This is not magic. This is not something beyond us. This is what we're doing. And as we sit in session, as we go deeper within ourselves, as we learn, as we teach ourselves how to be ourself, the total experience of being ourself actualizes. And that's why Dogen says elsewhere in the Gendra Cohen, when one side is light, the other side is dark. Practicing one activity is to enter open activity with our entire being. Practicing one activity is to enter one activity with our total being. No self-effort is required here. 
Yet there is a clear intent, very clear intent. This is the cultivation of samadhi. This is how we deeply, deeply enter. This is how the clarity of our mind begins to shine forth in transparent tranquility and limitless compassion, which includes all beings and especially yourself. Not special, but this is where we're starting and practicing from. In practicing activity, we enter the samadhi of activity without anyone acting without anyone entering. When we sit in Zazen, we enter and actively practice it with intent. That's bodhicitta. There's an intent. We can let that intent rest and just sit wholeheartedly. One activity. And yet in that intent and activity, we encounter samadhi. We encounter it and continuing to enter. And we are taken up by Zazen. We begin, however immeasurably, to forget ourselves. And only Zazen remains. And that too is forgotten. And so Dido says if, however, this is not yet clear, then take the backward step and see for yourself how Mayu's fanning himself is not only the wind reaching everywhere, but the fan, Mayu, the monastic, and you yourself reaching everywhere. Let me read it again. If, however, this is not yet clear, then take the backward step and see for yourself how you sitting Zazen is not only sitting Zazen reaching everywhere, but the mat, the cushion, the person next to you, the teacher, the monastic, the bell, and you yourself reaching everywhere. See for yourself. All Zen practice and realization is here. Master Dido's poem. Words cannot convey the action. Letters cannot embody the truth. How can they compare with old Mayu just fanning themselves? How can words compare when you sit, when some stillness begins? How can words compare when you walk? What is walking? When you cry, what is crying? When you laugh, to use a fan, even though the nature of wind is ever present, means that you and I arouse the mind that seeks the way, aspire to realize ourselves, and manifest that realization in this life. And so in doing this, we offer the Buddha Dharma to all beings, to use a fan, to sit zazen. Even though we all have Buddha nature, brings, as Dogen says, forth the gold of the earth and makes fragrant the cream of the river, brings forth our life, your life, all lives, through all time and space.
Thanks for listening. Looking for in-person practice opportunities? With the easing of pandemic quarantine restrictions, Zen Mountain Monastery and the Zen Center of New York City are once again open for group meditation, services, residency, and retreats. We'll continue to offer online programs to our Sangha near and far, even while we host more in-person events for all those able to travel. You can find all upcoming activities listed on our website, zmm.org.